Good evening. So tonight I'd like to speak about metta, about this friendliness that we've been cultivating in the past evenings, but not so much about the quality itself, but more about how to bring this quality of metta to life, how we can cultivate it and practice in our concrete everyday life. So a more practical approach of lived and embodied metta. And I'd like to begin with a poem by Hafiz. He was an Islamic mystic. Becoming human. Once a man came to me and spoke for hours about his great visions of God he felt he was having. He asked me for confirmation, saying, Are these wondrous dreams true? I replied, How many goats do you have? He looked surprised and said, I am speaking of sublime visions and you ask about goats? And I spoke again, saying, Yes, brother, how many do you have? Well, Hafiz, I have 62. And how many wives? Again he looked surprised, then said, Four. How many rose bushes in your garden? How many children? Are your parents still alive? Do you feed the birds in winter? And to all he answered. Then I said, You asked me if I thought your visions were true. I would say that they were if they make you become more human, more kind to every creature and plant that you know. Yes, so what we cultivate on our cushion in the meditation is one thing and how we talk, act and make decisions in our, our everyday life is another thing. And the question is really whether we can manifest what we have cultivated on the cushion in the world, in a world of deadlines and pressure, where things need to be accomplished, where you have to deal with other people and where you have to navigate your life in, within a complexity, information overload and high speed. And I really hope that the seeds that we've been cultivating here on retreat will manifest themselves in many ways in your lives because that's really the purpose of our practice a transformation of our hearts which then bear many fruits in our life in our actions in our relationships so that our life really becomes an expression of wisdom and compassion but just as well we could say, and that's also valid, that our everyday life is the place where we can practice kindness. It would be really artificial to say that we only practice all these wholesome qualities such as mindfulness, kindness, patience and other qualities only when we're in retreat and then we somehow step out of retreat and we just fall back into the normal hectic lifestyle and our normal habit patterns. 
We've spoken about that a lot, I think, in the past few days. So practice can really take place anytime, anywhere. Our everyday life actually offers us many, many opportunities to cultivate kindness at work, at study, while shopping, anytime. I once heard the story of a practitioner who put up a sign above the entrance door of his flat and it was on the inside. So he put up this sign and on this sign it said meditation hall. So each day when he left his flat, he stepped into his meditation hall, the world out there. So I would like to just look at certain areas where we can practice metta in the midst of our life. And the first practice is about dana, about generosity. The first way of embodying kindness is through giving freely. The Dalai Lama says, generosity is the most natural external expression of an inner attitude of compassion and loving kindness. When we have friendly feelings towards another being, it is totally natural that we like to offer things to this being. And we can see this in many parents who selflessly invest so much time and energy and money for their children. Or we also feel how easy it is for us to give to friends in the form of gifts or help or support. And there are many, many things we can give. We can give time, attention, material things, help, acknowledgement or simply our presence to another person. Sometimes we offer forgiveness to someone who has hurt us. And it's interesting that the word forgiveness even contains the word give, isn't it? Sometimes we offer patience. So generosity is a very basic, important quality for the whole spiritual path. And the Buddha always taught generosity first thing, long before he talked about meditation. And the reason for this was that generosity is something that all people can easily practice, regardless of age, of intelligence, wealth, status or meditative abilities. You don't need to have done many years of study or meditation practice or do complicated rituals in order to practice generosity. Even small children can be generous. It's simple. And yet generosity is a profoundly wholesome and healing quality. It has a very positive and uplifting, a brightening effect on our mind. Because every time we offer something to another being with a pure motivation, we practice letting go. And letting go is what this path is all about, ultimately. Learning to stop clinging to things, to ideas, to concepts, to people, to let go. The Buddha said, 
If you knew what I know about the power of giving, you would not let a single meal pass without sharing in it, it in some way. So really this basic attitude, whatever we have, can we share it? Generosity is a simple and yet powerful practice because it really transforms our heart-mind. It counteracts our tendency to hold on and to cling. And it has many beneficial consequences, karmic consequences. So according to the Buddha, generosity brings happiness before, during and after an act. Just even having a thought, you know, oh, I could give this to this person, makes our mind happy. I don't know whether you have noticed that in your own minds. Even just having this intention brings a certain joy. And then, of course, the joy of actually giving it to someone. And uh, that's really delightful. It's really delightful to be able to offer something and have a sense of connection that arises through this act of giving. And that's also something I, I really I love about the tradition um, of offering food to monastics as it is done in Burma or Thailand. There is something very, very sacred in this act of offering food to someone and seeing our offering being received by another person. And then after the act also, we have happiness. You know, in retrospect, when we remember past deeds of generosity, this brings joy to the mind. So, you know, when you find yourself depressed and, you know, you're doubting everything, just remember your own acts of generosity. The Buddha also spoke about many benefits of generosity for relationships. If you think of it relating to other people in this spirit of generosity establishes a, a wonderful connection between us. We sense joy, appreciation, connection, both as givers and as recipients. A person who is generous is liked and appreciated by others and others like to associate with them. Generosity leads to a good reputation, to self-confidence, because we have the feeling we have something to offer. And on the level of society, it's indispensable. It's really the foundation of any healthy society. Our societies would completely disintegrate if it weren't for millions and billions of people who are generous every day. Sometimes we can also feel the healing effect of generosity when we have a tension or a conflict with a person. And, you know, sometimes just offering a small gift to such a person can help us to overcome this divide. So it's something beautiful and it is fundamental. We really depend on generosity because all of us, we are always both givers and receivers. 
Sometimes we are at the receiving end. Sometimes we are at the giving end. We, we all participate in, in a constant flow of resources which sustains all of us. And in this flow, all of us contribute and receive at the same time. So I find it a really beautiful practice. Then um, also another aspect of practicing metta is ethics. The Buddha said that metta promotes ethical behavior, or we could maybe also rather say that ethical behavior is a natural expression of friendliness and goodwill. If we truly care for the welfare of other beings, then it's clear that this prohibits any action by which we would deliberately harm other beings, whether through words or deeds. So metta makes us more considerate of others, more sensitive to their well-being. And so we want to live with integrity, not because we want to look good, but because we really care about other beings, because we like them. The Buddha said that someone who has developed loving-kindness from childhood will no longer be able to act unethically. What do you think, practitioners? If a child had developed the liberation of the heart through kindness from early childhood, would they still commit evil deeds? Certainly not, sir. So, to act ethically is an expression of, of metta, but it's also a, a form of generosity. For through our integrity in words and deeds, we give others the gift of freedom from fear when they are near us. The nun from the Tibetan tradition, she's basically English, but uh, in the Tibetan tradition, Jetsun Ma Tenzin Pamo writes this. And this is our basic ethical conduct that we live in this world in a way that any being who comes in our presence knows they have nothing to fear from us because we are not going to hurt them. We are not going to steal from them. We are not going to misuse them. We are not going to cheat them. They are safe with us and we are also safe with ourselves. Ethics are not only relevant in those, you know, special moments in life where we have to make big decisions, but constantly. Our whole life is permeated by small, inconspicuous ethical decisions. Like, you know, when you find yourself in a group gossiping about an absent person, do we join in or do we refrain? When our boss asks to do asks us to do something that is unethical, do we comply with it or do we say no? Do we kill a mosquito? There are hundreds or maybe even thousands small decisions that are ethical every day. Now, as you probably know, in the Dharma, we have these five basic ethical guidelines 
to refrain from harming or killing any living creature, from stealing, etc. And such guidelines can at times really be helpful because they are like the last dam that prevents us from doing something stupid that we would regret later. But these guidelines, they are founded on a commitment to a life that doesn't do harm and even more a commitment to kindness and care. And sometimes this commitment also implies that we are willing to take certain risks or sacrifices because the welfare of beings is so dear to us. And human history is full of beautiful examples of men and women who put themselves on the line for the welfare of others. If you think of people who protected Jews from the Nazis during Second World War, or people who took or are right now taking social action to prevent ecological destruction, or people going into war-ridden areas to offer food, medicine, shelter to people, people who write reports about injustice. There are many, many people who are living a very um, engaged life and taking risks for this. I'm not saying we all have to do it, but just to say this can also be part of it. So meta promoting ethical behavior and at times even bringing the willingness to pay a price for this. Then I would like to speak about kindness in communication. Language and communication is such an important aspect of our life that it really deserves some separate consideration. I'm always impressed anew just by the power that words can have, spoken or written or sometimes even unspoken words. How the way, as how the way in which we communicate is often almost more important than what we communicate, the content. So communication is a very rich and often challenging field of practice. Kindness in speech can mean that we do not speak in harsh, coarse, derogatory, hurtful ways, neither sarcastically nor cynically. Of course, you could say mm, words are just sound waves. But if someone calls us an idiot, this has a ma massive effect on us. We, we flinch, we contract, maybe we feel ashamed insecure, powerless, worthless. Maybe we have heard such words when we were children and we have internalized them and feel the, the strong impact they have. And how often does it happen that we are the ones saying hurtful things to others in arguments that we use words as a weapon to hit the other person in their in the weakest point. And this really doesn't serve us. It's actually really unwholesome. Sometimes we may realize only afterwards how hurtful our words were, 
how they hit the other person. Maybe we were just a little bit absent. There was not enough mindfulness, not enough, you know, wakefulness. And so we just made this small sneering remark and not really anticipating what it would mean for the other person. So it's really a practice of mindfulness also, a practice of mindfulness and metta to speak words of kindness, of connectedness, of appreciation. And this doesn't need to be big or gigantic. Just, you know, normal kindness. And when we realize the power that we have through our words, we become more and more attentive to what comes out of our mouth and what doesn't. I would like to read you a passage from Dogen. He was a very famous Zen master in the 12th century, founder of the Sotoshu. And he writes about kind speech. Kind speech means, first of all, to arouse a compassionate mind when you meet with sentient beings and to offer words of loving care. It is contrary to cruel or violent speech. In society, there is a custom of asking others if they are well. In the Buddha way, we have the phrase, please treasure yourself. And the respectful address to seniors, may I ask how you are? It is kind speech to speak to sentient beings as you would to your own baby. Praise those with virtue, have compassion for those without it. If kind speech is offered, little by little kind speech grows. Thus even kind speech that is not ordinarily known or seen comes into being. Be willing to practice it for this entire present life. Do not give up world after world life after life. Kind speech is the basis for reconciling rulers and subduing enemies. Those who hear kind speech from you have a delighted expression and their mind becomes joyful. Those who hear of your kind speech will be deeply touched. They will always remember it. Know that kind speech arises from a kind heart and a kind heart from the seed of a compassionate heart. Ponder the fact that kind speech is not just praising the merit of others, it has the power to transform the world. So, power of words. But in addition to communication through words, through language, there is, of course, also the whole area of nonverbal communication, our facial expression, our gestures. And this too is a large and rich field of practice, of, of exploration. You know, even when we're moving in public space, what is our habitual facial expression with which we move through the world? 
Are we just habitually having a somewhat annoyed facial expression? Are we always looking a little bit tired or rejecting? Or are we moving through the world with a relaxed face, ready to smile to someone? Sometimes it's just a friendly eye contact that really makes a difference. A smile when we maybe sit down in the same compartment on a train. It completely changes the atmosphere. You know, a while ago, before the lockdown, I had a, a tiny situation, and I mean, there would be millions of examples, in a shop at the train station where, the, where a woman in front of me at the checkout had trouble paying with her card. And I could really feel a tension rising up, not just in me, but in everybody. There was like this impatience, when is this moving forward? We need to catch the train and so. And then somehow the man in front of me was there and we, we just smiled at each other. And then he made a small remark and then the cashier said something. And then suddenly we were in a small chat and I could really feel how the whole atmosphere just relaxed. And it was not a problem just to wait for a few minutes uh, until the, the payment went through. So sometimes it's really just incredible to see the effect of such extremely simple signs of, of kindness. Then the next area where we can practice metta is perception. When the mind is filled with metta, we can really notice how our perception changes. We perceive the world differently, more friendly, more benevolent, because metta always looks out for the good, for, for what is um, lovable in beings. Metta sees what we might normally overlook, even, you know, the small things, the unimpressive things. It appreciates what is good and lovable about a person or a thing, even when there is awareness of the negative sides. But just the willingness to acknowledge what is good helps the mind to find more inner balance, more equanimity. And this too, we can consciously practice in everyday life. For instance, when we notice anger arising in the mind about a person, we could ask ourselves, what was perhaps the good intention of this person? Maybe there is something I don't know. Instead of imputing bad motives to another person, you know, thinking, oh, they did it on purpose, they, they are bad, we could ask, what was their true intention? Maybe they thought this was the right thing to do within their framework. I find this so important to remember in these times where there are so many suspicions and blames going through social media that we ask ourselves, do I really know? And if not, could I just leave it open? You know, Bikwanala, you recently told me an anecdote of a very old Christian monk whom he met in a monastery in Australia. 
and he says this this old monk is just the friendliest person in the world and everybody around loves him because he's such a sweet person and one day he told to Bikwanalayo should I tell you a secret you know I really believe all people want the good so that's his basic attitude when he meets people no wonder that people feel safe and loved in his presence so we can choose to see the positive the wholesome qualities of other people in family at work their good intentions or something they have done or said and really make this a practice and it is a practice because as you know, when we are upset, when someone really gets on our nerves, this is difficult. Something in us refuses to admit that this person has some good sides. Many years ago, that was really impressive for me. I worked at a family counseling center and my colleague and I spoke with a mother who was very desperate and very negative about her son who had some behavioral disorder. She went on and on describing all his misbehavior and the problems. But at some point, my colleague asked her what she liked about her son, what she appreciated. And the mother just fell silent and really had to think for a while before she then finally came up with well, I appreciate that he makes his bed in the morning. So this mother had really spiraled into a place where seeing the goodness in her own son became difficult. And that's in a way understandable because he was really driving her crazy. But it's also sad. And we can all end up in these places. Don't we know that? We can fall into this view where we only see negativity. But if we remember Metta, the world looks different, brighter. There is a tale that I would like to read to you from the Hindu tradition that speaks to this, Lord Krishna and the two men. It is told in India that Lord Krishna wished to see if the kings of his land were wise. So he called first a king named Duryodhana. Duryodhana was known as a cruel man and the, the people in his kingdom feared him. Lord Krishna told Duryodhana that he was to take a journey throughout the lands. I want you, Lord Krishna said, to look for one truly good person for me. Duryodhana obeyed Lord Krishna and began his travels. He found many different kinds of people and spoke to them about many things. After a long time away, Duryodhana returned to Lord Krishna and said, Lord, I have done what you commanded me and looked the whole world over for one truly good soul. Such a person I could not find. Each one I met was selfish and evil-minded. 
a truly good person cannot be found anywhere. Lord Krishna sent Duryodhana on his way and called King Dhammaraja to see him. Dhammaraja was known as a kind man who tried to help people in his kingdom, who loved him very much. Lord Krishna said to King Dhammaraja, I want you to journey throughout all the lands and find me one truly evil person. Dhammaraja said, as you wish, my lord. And like Duryodhana, he set off on a long journey. After much time had passed, Dhammaraja came to Lord Krishna and said, My lord, I have not brought back the one truly evil person you wished to see. I found that people make mistakes. I found that they are fooled by others. I found that they act as if they are blind. But I could not find a truly evil person. The people are all good in their hearts. So, a beautiful perspective on the world. And as a last aspect, Metta can also teach us how to hold a larger perspective of non-separation and to live in such a perspective of non-separation. Loving kindness and this warmth of the heart really let us recognize the connection with all beings, not on an intellectual being. Uh, intellectual level, but as a felt connection with other beings. When we recognize that the happiness or unhappiness of another person is also my happiness or unhappiness, that I'm not separated from it, this will also impact my actions. So metta softens our sense of a separate self, our self-centeredness, and thus it makes it easier to realize that we're basically holding on to such a self-fabricated sense of a separate self. It helps us to realize that we are totally interwoven with all other beings, with the whole universe. Maybe quite a few of you know this quote by Albert Einstein. A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He, she experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of the consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So when through the practice the practice 
in general and specifically the practice of kindness, of warmth, our heart opens, then we feel less separated, less cut off from life. And we realize how life is an incredibly precious interplay of many, many beings. And they are all connected and interdependent. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, he was a Thai master in the last century, he said this, the entire cosmos is a cooperative. The sun, the moon and the stars live together as a cooperative. The same is true for humans and animals, trees and the earth. When we realize that the world is a mutual, interdependent, cooperative enterprise, then we can build a noble environment. If our lives are not based on this truth, then we shall perish. From a perspective of non-separation, we will naturally act more in harmony with what is good for the whole. We no longer think only of how to get the biggest piece of the cake for ourselves, but we develop a desire to help other beings to contribute to this world. So our view can expand, it can become more inclusive and we become more aware of the consequences of our actions for other people, for nature, for the planet. And we realize that such a perspective actually makes us happier than this petty, selfish pursuit just of our personal career, personal ambition and advantage. We feel we belong. We realize we can never fall out of this cosmos and we're invited to contribute to this world as who we are in our uniqueness. We realize that it matters how we speak, how we decide, act, work, shop, how we do politics, how we do business, because everything we do in the complex network of cause and effect is reproduced endlessly as an impulse. It, it continues to vibrate. You know, there is this image of Indra's web. It's a beautiful parable from the Avatamsaka Sutra from the Mahayana tradition. So according to the legend, the god Indra, actually a Hindu deity, has in his sphere a wide net which is indefinitely large, extending endlessly in all directions and at each node of this net, there is a glittering jewel. And this means that in this net hang an infinite number of jewels. And in each of these jewels, all other jewels are mirrored and reflected, which in turn mirror all jewels. So an infinite process of reflection is created. I find that a truly beautiful image. It's an image that symbolizes the conditioned and dependent existence of all phenomena. 
the fact that nothing and nobody exists independently of everything else. And that's a fact that we're being reminded of in dramatic ways just now. The coronavirus and its huge social and economic effects, then the climate change, the extinction of many animal and plant species, the destruction or pollution of vast areas of land or sea, and so many other issues, they all wake us up to the interdependence and the conditionality of this world and its fragility. So I'm probably not alone with this sense that right now we are living in, in a time where it's crucial for the further life on this planet that we globally wake up to this non-separation and mutual conditionality. When we encounter such challenges, it's almost as if we realize we're called to make a choice and to live up to our potential. You know, when there is a lack of mindfulness, of stability, of kindness, chances are that we fall into the old reactive patterns of greed, of hatred, of delusion when things get tough. But with the help of those beautiful qualities, such challenges can also be a huge spiritual chance to grow and to discover our own strength. They can in a way really be a great spiritual opportunity for us to overcome our complacency. They are a wake-up call. So the question is how can I help coming from this place of metta, of care, of kindness? What is it that I can offer where I am with my unique abilities and qualities? What kind of jewel do I want to be at the node of space and time where I am right now? Where does life call me? And I think the answer to these questions is never final. It's an endless koan, you know, a Zen riddle that needs to be asked repeatedly over the period of our life. There are endless possibilities to express a perspective of non-separation, interdependence, metta in our lives. It could be at work, it could be through political engagement, it could be by choosing a more climate-neutral lifestyle, by supporting social projects. But whatever we do, it's really important that all these activities come from a place of peace, from groundedness in inner peace rather than in anger. The peace and the clear seeing that we are cultivating on our cushion, in our practice, the sense of inner ease and well-being and joy that comes from doing the practice, it will allow us to really offer something. So it's really the, the starting point. So there is this quote by Eti Hillesum. I don't know whether you know her. She was a 
actually a mystic person. She was a Jew who was killed in the concentration camp. She was from the Netherlands. Ultimately, we have just one moral duty, to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace, and to reflect it towards others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will be in our troubled world. So we've seen that kindness has many, many faces. It expresses itself as generosity in the form of ethical integrity, in the way we communicate with other beings, in the way we look at the world, in the way we care for the greater whole the deep insight into non-separation of all life. And as we develop the ability to be more at balance within, to have a little bit more peace, even if it's not so much yet, but still, our ability and our capacity to find skillful, wise and loving responses to the great challenges of our time increases. What does this moment need? What can I bring to this moment? What would be helpful, skillful in this moment? It's a never-ending exploration. So we, we develop our heart, our mind, so that the world can make use of all these strengths when needed. And you know, I think basically we don't really have a choice in that because in a world of so much change, of suffering, it's only qualities like metta and compassion and wisdom that really make sense. They are the only meaningful response. And I would like to close with a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that expresses this understanding. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating mice and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it 
until your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth, then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So let's just sit for a moment. So, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.